Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia. We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs. Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job. Yeah, it worked for us. To find motivated young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolau. Hello, you're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan and I'm here with David Scott. Dave, uh, you sound a bit different. Do I? I don't know. Has my voice changed? Uh, You tell me. Yeah. Uh, We're in an all-new studio, so there will be a a little bit of uh, uh, experimentation for us, I think, uh, getting used to the new format. Um, Our guest this week on the show, uh, where we're going to talk healthy market pullbacks, we're going to talk hedge funds and alternative investments in an increasingly complex world. For the first time on the show, we have a fellow Irishman, and that's Neil Power, who is Managing Director of Hedge Fund Strategies at Blue Sky Alternative Investments. Neil, great to have you on the show. Pleasure. Uh, look, Blue Sky, really interesting uh, company. Um, it's listed on the ASX. Um, came from small beginnings about a decade ago or so. Uh, now approaching something like $3 billion under management. Yep. Um, and um, this has been really, really rapid growth the last couple of years, eh? Look, it has. I mean, it's it's an overnight success that took 10 years to happen. So uh, the, it took us nine years to get the first billion dollars under management. Uh, and our assets grew in the last year by a billion dollars under management. So it's moving pretty quickly now, but a lot of work went into it in the early days to get the ball rolling. And certainly, um, you know, I think uh, it's got a lot of uh, some very interesting investments by the company. I think one of the most ho- high profile ones was... Uh, um, the venture capital arm uh, raised, I think, a, a $200 million fund. One of the very high-profile investments out of that was uh, Vina Mofo, uh, the, uh, the boys from Adelaide with the little wine company. Yeah, the little wine company that's now global. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's another uh, outrageous success that's taken um, a while to happen. Uh, the model with the, um, uh, the PE and the venture capital is to find really good, unique businesses that are in stable sectors. But the idea would be that these businesses are already up and running. In the case of PE, they already have to be profitable. In the case of VC, they have to be functioning, have the team and the team planning on staying. So we're not in the very early stages of VC uh, and innovation is a key part of what we're trying to do. So you're uh, MD of uh, hedge fund strategies, yeah. um, but uh, Blue Sky um, has a, a whole bunch of different areas that it invests. Do you want to just quickly talk us through that? Yeah, absolutely. There are four key business divisions in Blue Sky. The first one is the private equity venture capital. We put them in together. Um, they are what they say in the tin, uh, looking for, as I mentioned, firms that are already sta- stable and established. We're looking for uh, to participate in sectors where there's a need, the essentials, uh, ideally health, food, education, wine clearly is an essential, uh, and not so much on the cyclicals. The second area is private equity. It used to have a large focus on medium density residential in Brisbane, but increasingly our focus is on purpose-built student accommodation. So we're now doing that all over Australia, and we're actually starting that in the U.S. as well. Yeah, which I think is really interesting. Um, I learned a little bit about the company uh, this week at a a presentation uh, in Sydney. 
Um, and uh, the whole area of student uh, accommodation is actually solving a real need that's out there. I remember my days uh, in university, you know, finding somewhere to live is tough, right? Um, and the facilities that uh, students back in my day uh, used to live in were uh, uh, often questionable places, but this is a little bit different, right? It, it's entirely different, and it's very much targeting the international student market. Uh, and Australia's third largest export is education, um, after tourism and resources. Uh, and the particularly we're targeting, obviously, the Chinese uh, market, where wealthy Chinese parents are looking to educate their kids, get them started somewhere and do it somewhere in the same time zone. So Australia is obviously a key target for that. Absolutely. Um, just uh, one question, right? So you can obviously own a bit of uh, Blue Sky um, uh, as a, a retail investor by buying shares. Sure. It, right? um, but uh, who are your customers for the hedge fund? The customers for the hedge fund are high net worth family office and institutional investors. So by definition, they have to have a higher level of sophistication. Uh, where, blues, where the hedge fund component fits in the broader Blue Sky story is interesting in that uh, our, the, the company was built on our clients being high net worth individuals who are generally or frequently entrepreneurial by nature. So you can show them a private equity or a venture capital or a real estate opportunity and they can have a good sniff of it, sniff at it and kind of go, yep, I get it, I like it, I don't or whatever. If you put a, a complex systematic hedge fund under the nose, they haven't got a clue and people quite rightly tend not to invest in things they don't understand. So we sit outside the usual market, uh, but where Blue, the, the hedge fund team fits within the Blue Sky story is that all of the other asset classes, the, the, the private equity VC, the real assets, which is agriculture-based infrastructure, and the real estate, is that a lot of those have a lot of equity market beta uh, risk, a lot of correlation. They're reasonably correlated to that. We are entirely different. Uh, by design, our strategy, Dynamic Macro, has a firm negative correlation to equities. So we strive to deliver what we call crisis alpha. We look to outperform, particularly when markets are going through a tough time. So in a way, we're highly complementary to everything else that happens in Blue Sky because we're counter-cyclical by definition. And that really also is our, is, our, is our pitch, if you like, to investors that by adding us to your portfolio, you're basically adding protection to the portfolio. So what are the sort of assets then that uh, you, you trade? Uh, through the hedge fund. Yeah, sure. We're a, we're a CTA, a commodity trading advisor. So we just trade futures, but we trade them across equity indices like the DAX, the FTSE, the S&P. We trade bonds, so that would be the euro-dollar short sterling or the ten year US 10-year Aussie 10-year. Uh, we trade currencies uh, and we trade commodities. But one of the key things about ourselves is that we're fully systematic. So all of our trading is algorithm-driven. So our Heavy lifting goes into doing the research and programming the algorithms and setting up the risk monitoring systems. But once we turn on the algorithms, we follow them 100%. And it does it does the work. Do you have a target return for uh, the global? Uh, yeah, micro? absolutely. Um, it's CPI plus eight to ten percent. Right. Hi. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. But we, we're, we target particularly with our dynamic macro strategy. We're targeting a sixteen percent volatility, which is in itself quite high. And um, for some investors, they find that. Little, a little, a little bit too high, but then you remind them that the volatility of a diversified portfolio of listed equities is 16%, which is why we chose the number. So the, you, you, your stock market portfolio bounces up and down all the time and you kind of go, hey, what are you going to do? It's the stock market. But that's why since we're designed to be a complementary addition to a portfolio with a lot of equity risk, we made sure that by targeting 16% that it would have an impact.
Beautiful segue uh, for me into uh, what I want to talk about next, which is uh, this week we saw something we haven't seen in months. Uh, it was a 1% move on the U.S. stock market. Um, the S&P pulled back a little bit, and I suppose the question is whether this is the, the first swallow of a summer uh, heralding a change in the market mood or whether it's just another wobble as uh, U.S. equities continue to grind higher as they have done seemingly for, you know, um, uh, you know, at least in, in, in current memory. Um, so, uh, Dave, um, the Trump reflation trade uh, market may be losing a bit of enth- enthusiasm for it, hey? It has. Uh, they're definitely uh, rethinking the strategy that was uh, being – uh, heralded uh, in the latter, latter parts of last year, the uh, the whole idea of like you know higher growth, higher inflation, uh, faster tight, tightening Fed and the like, um, and we've seen that uh, we saw a, a glitch in the uh, that mindset uh, yesterday. Uh, obviously, we saw the first one percent decline in the S and P since September last year. Um, but really, it's uh, you know it comes down to whether Trump can go and first and foremost get through uh, this uh, this healthcare uh, affordable uh, healthcare act. Uh, that will go and lay the, plat- the platform and give the market some sort of indication as to whether his proposed tax cuts that are coming down the pipeline have a chance of succeeding. Yeah, and there's um, there just continues to be this sort of mounting sense of uncertainty about uh, about policy effectiveness. I mean, you think we have policy effectiveness problems here in Australia. I mean, you look at what's happening to the U.S. administration, and it like it's uh, it's been staggering. Um, uh, this week, I think you know the House Intelligence Committee, um, the chair of the the, the um, House Intelligence Committee, coming out onto the steps of of the Capitol and announcing that uh, it turns out that um, Trump was being monitored by intelligence services, and the big question is who was he talking to? Um, that he ended up being caught in this net. Uh, and he made that announcement and then uh, poodled off up uh, uh, Pennsylvania Avenue to go and tell the president that this was the case. Um, and it just seems to be this, you know, never ending cycle of new things coming out every sort of 24 hours. Anyway, um, so a little bit of a, a market wobble uh, uh, this week. Um, and I suppose, Neil, um, the big question is, you know, for a long time, we've been talking about stretch valuations uh, in global equities, particularly in advanced markets. Um, what do you see uh, uh, happening here and how how, um, how tightly do you think this rubber band is pulled at the moment? Oh, look, there, there's no question that the rubber band is stretched and it has been for a long time. I mean, we can talk today about the valuations being overdone. But we could have said exactly the same thing six, twelve, or eighteen months ago. Uh, and one thing that we've learned over the years is that an overbought market can always become more overbought. For us, and my interpretation of it, it's just a question of what do you think the risks of a snapback or a correction are going to be? And just by mathematical definition, the longer a, an elastic band or a market is stretched without some sort of correction the bigger the risk. Now, I think what happened the other night with that little 1% sell-off, which on the scheme of things was nothing, uh, that's healthy for the market. That's not necessarily heralding a large correction. But the more of those, I mean, to be honest, if we had a 5% correction and the market stayed there for, let's say, two months, it would be a far healthier and a far stronger market to move on. You, you just can't keep on going in a straight line. So, um, 100%. Like, you, the markets have got to breathe. That's like a, a trading term. Like, you've got to have to see breathing. That's a healthy market, no rally, where you have small pullbacks and then no new fresher highs and the like. So, yeah, I, the one thing I've noticed a lot with the, uh, the price action recently, it just looks fatigued. Uh, the S&P, Dow, a lot of those stocks, the indices were 
wavering and there's been that's been pretty much going on since the start of this year and then yeah i just found it interesting that all of a sudden it came down to everyone was talking about the healthcare uh reforms and the vote on that but i'm not sure whether that was the actual catalyst or whether it was something else that was actually driving the uh, the pullback we saw i think the challenge here is deeper even before the trump rally what you saw if you were look if you were monitoring the unemployment figures that came out on the first friday of the month in the u.s uh, watch those closely, obviously. If it's a really large number, lots of new jobs, that's great for the economy, buy stocks. The next month, it's a really low number. That means they're not going to put up rates, buy stocks. Hillary's going to get elected, buy stocks. Oh, what do you know? Trump's elected, buy, buy stocks. stocks. And when it's like that, mm. when everybody is just utterly convinced, uh, Paul, you'll know, the Irish property market story, people were still buying investment properties two months before the crash because a 1,000% gain in 14 years wasn't enough. There's more. <laughs> when everybody's looking the one way, thinking that everything's perfect, that's when the bus hits you from behind. And the more I saw that, and then that was Trump being elected and that Friday, we were all here watching it, when the markets initially sold off, and then they kind of went, Meep. the first thing he said was, we're going to build up the infrastructure or spend big on infrastructure in his acceptance speech. Oh, yes. And then that turned. Uh, and I think the the Trump rally was certainly was driven by the deregulation of the tax cuts and the infrastructure spend. But that was just more of the same. All news is good news. And, you know, the, the tighter it goes, the longer that band is overstretched, the bigger the snap's going to be. Yeah, there's the, the, the hopium trade. Like, you know, everyone's hoping that it's going to go and occur, but that seems to be going like hopium's been driving a lot of these things. Now, there's no doubt the US economy is improving, but at some time you've got to actually see the rubber hit the road and actually see that put into action. And that's where I think things are a little bit uh, a bit tedious at this point in time. I, I 100% agree. I think that's where the market is now. They've bought into the, the, the hype. Now they want to see some traction, as you said. And the signs are not good because I think what is probably most likely to happen is some sort of scandal impeachment process will either be very close or it'll be happening. And that's going to distract this administration until the last day of it. And the idea of that he's just going to carry out this massive uh, economically liberal agenda uh, and get business moving in, in any way, shape or form, I think it'll just be ground down. So I think my view is, I don't know if the correction is going to happen now, but my view is the market's going to pause for breath and just see what happens. Yeah, and uh, like even in terms of, uh, he's talking about, I think, half a trillion dollars worth of, of, of stimulus, but that takes time to roll out, right? Even, you know, you get it through Congress, uh, and it's still then, after that, it still is going to take time to find the projects, get them approved, um, then find the workers, um, and then start rolling that out. So you kind of think, well, you know, we're early 2017 here now. Even a year would be incredibly optimistic to get to get Things any started. of that. Any of that. And, and infrastructure takes about five to ten years to pay off. So you get the initial kicker from employing people and some money running through the, the corporate sector, the construction sector. But the whole idea of infrastructure is that you're improving the, the ability for people to move around and do business, and the real payoff's not for a long time away. So uh, one interesting question, and this goes back to, I suppose, the whole thing with um, um, you know, uh, Blue Sky uh, having these alternative, um, you know, alternatives to just buying equities. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we've seen, I mean, just going back way before Trump and back through the, the, the middle of the Obama years, you know, when you had um, uh, zero um, percent interest rates uh, in, in the US and uh, negative interest rates starting to kick in in, uh, in, in uh, Europe and Japan. Um, now, in that case, one of the things there is, you know, when people borrow money. It's so cheap to borrow money and then you look for a place to invest it. Where can you go? 
well, let's buy some Apple, let's buy some Dow Jones Industrial Average, buy the index. Do you think that is has been one of the drivers um, to sort of this continuous grinding higher um, and uh, of, of particularly the, the S&P, for example? It has to be. U.S. interest rates are still technically an emergency level. So put those two things together. Interest rates are at emergency levels to get the economy going and equities are at all-time highs at the same time. That just doesn't really compute. And my view slash fear is that the Fed, it emerges that the Fed are behind the ball chasing inflation. And you hear anecdotally, uh, I sat on a plane going from Dublin to New York beside an Irish bloke, very impressive young guy who had a steel fabricating business, employed 90 staff based in Brooklyn, servicing the skyscrapers of Manhattan. And his biggest issue was finding staff. So for him to get staff, he has to pay up. Now, sure, the New York isn't all of America, but there's just one guy that you speak to that basically says there's not as much spare capacity in the economy as perhaps people think. And if there's a whiff that the Fed are behind the ball in controlling inflation, that's when we're in big trouble. And I'm old enough to remember 1994, the first time the Fed raised rates in a long time, and they realized that we're not just raising rates now, but we are going to move again. And everybody went, these guys have lost control of the game. And I think that's the biggest risk at the moment. Um, let me talk, uh, ask you a little bit more broadly about um, hedge funds, right? Because um, you mentioned earlier on, I think one of the, the uh, interesting points you made that, that sometimes people um, don't want to invest in things they don't understand, um, and uh, or they find it difficult to, to, to decide. Right, I'm going to go in on that because I get it and I and I can see what, how that works and, yeah. and and what the the process is, etc. Um, so hedge funds, uh, you know, occasionally you see them pop up in the news and they can you know there can often be a lot of interesting commentary on them. Um, particularly, you hear I think sometimes, particularly in Australian equity circles, you know, you hear these grumbles about people who. Um, think that, well, isn't it terrible that they believe that the price of something could go down? Um, that, uh, <laughs> um, you know, these people who are shorting stocks because, you know. We believe um, in price discovery as long as it's higher. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, so, look, um, what, what makes a, a, say, a hedge fund different? I mean, you talked about some of the, um, the different apps, assets mm-hmm. that, you, mm-hmm. that you invest in. But what makes um, your type of hedge fund, your type of hedge fund strategy different from, a, say, a long-short equity fund? Uh, well, long-short equity funds usually are still mostly long. Uh, and they're looking for opportunistic shorts. So they still have a huge amount of uh, beta risk, expo- beta exposure. So they're not trying to hedge equities. They're just trying to d- offer a diversified solution to listed equities. Uh, we are not just completely uncorrelated to equities. We're negatively correlated to equities by design. But just in general, I'm doing a lot of uh, talking at the moment about diversification and portfolio diversification. And if you think about hedge funds when they started, the name hedge, or well, we're going to help you hedge your exposure and help your portfolio, uh, portfolio. But the Hedge Fund Research Index, the HFRI, which is an index of 2,000 hedge funds weighted by assets uh, with data going back over 20 years, the correlation between that and the S&P is 0.9. It is very, very high. So you've got to look as well if you look at the hard time hedge funds have had and the reputation from hedge funds i mean it's very much a case of a um a few uh, rotten apples upsetting the whole barrel they're regulated out of uh, 
you know, out the way. So it's very, very hard for any sort of hedge fund unless it's like a $30 million one down in Miami where he just gets a whole lot of old people up. He just, he's, never, <laughs> he's not even a fund at all. He just gets the cash and buggers off. Garage it's, band, yeah. 100%. Yeah. But it's... um. But if you look at the environment that we've been in, and we've just been talking about it, March this year is the makes it the current rally eight years, and the S and P has gone up the, from the post GFC low, and the S and P has gone up about two hundred and thirty percent in that period. Now, is it any wonder any sort of strategy that's designed to diversify away from equity risk has underperformed when, in fact, over the last eight years, you, you didn't want any diversification; you just wanted to be in the S and P because it's great. So it hasn't been a golden era for hedge funds just because the very reason that they exist has not actually been needed. Now, I think we are genuinely entering into a next two, three, four-year period that might start. Well, who knows when it's going to start? That's going to be far more challenging for equities, and that's when diversification is really going to get on back on people's radars, and they're going to realize that to get proper diversification, it might cost you a bit. Now, sure, the 2 and 20 fee model for hedge funds is, is absolutely dead. But to grind hedge funds down to you know, 0 and 10, uh, you know, it, it's, it, when volati- volatility comes back to the market, I think you'll find that the guys that are charging 0 and 10 that have come up with factor replication models or risk premium models, cheaper versions, I think they're all going to be caught out and people are still going to need uh, managers that have talent and insight. Um, and you know they'll realise that you know their hedge funds do have a strong role to play. Are there particular sectors or industries um, within your strategy um, that you're um, you're more bullish on or, or, or more bearish on? I please don't laugh, but I'd be more bullish on a manager, uh, given where you are in the economic cycle, that has got a, quite a either zero or negative correlation to equity markets because like I say, we are at a point where either the band snaps or just by natural exhaustion something gives uh, and you would want to be in a strategy that has is going to provide genuine protection. Now, if you think about uh, the, your, your typical asset class mix of equities and bonds and real estate, uh, at the last GFC, the only strategy that outperformed our asset class was bonds. Uh, but if you look at where yields are at the moment, before the GFC last year, or last time round, the t- US 10-year yields were just under 5%. And over the course of the GFC, they compressed down to 1.45. So that gave quite a kicker, and bonds did actually give some proper protection to your portfolio if you had them. Now, however, US 10-year yields are 2.4%. So they haven't got anywhere near as much room to be compressed. So you're not going to get anywhere near the same protection as, as you did during the GFC from your bond portfolio. So you're going to have to work a little bit harder. Um, D- Dave, uh, um, what do you make of um, the, the place of uh, hedge funds currently in Australia in the investment, uh, in the investment landscape? Do you think they're, they're understood well enough? Um, and do, do you think uh, hedge funds are doing a good enough job of explaining what they do? Uh, I think there's definitely a role for them, and I don't think that uh, I know that it's, uh, there's anything that's bad about them. I know they get a bad rap. A lot of the time, you when you hear hedge funds, it's when they're blown up. Uh, almost always, it's when a big funds or when a fund's blown up, and uh, I know all the heartache that's been caused. Um, I think they could do a better job of uh, explaining to the layperson what it is actually it is, but. Yet again, coming back to what we were talking about earlier, it's a more sophisticated product. So 
for some people, it's not going to be the right thing to invest in. But for those who have a better understanding and people who have more funds to go and invest, then I think it's definitely a, a place. There's a definitely a place in the marketplace for it. Yeah, I, I, I think you know one interesting hedge fund manager that I met a few years ago, and his uh, mandate was to get about two and a half percent. It was a very large fund. Um, but he was, uh, it was, um, it was like a proper hedge. Um, you park your money there when you don't want it to disappear in any sort of way, shape or form. Uh, so his whole thing was, you know, anything that happens in the market, his fund still just keeps churning out oh, two and a half. Yeah, when you look at just where the, the asset prices are at the moment, uh, particularly stocks, you just got to look where's the biggest risk in terms of, you know, is there going to be more risk of another 10% upside from here or is there more risk of a 10% downside? And I think that more and more people are starting to go and feel a little bit uneasy that maybe there's much more downside risk. And I think that's where you know, hedge funds, good hedge funds come into their own. But I think as well, you can look at what the smartest people in town are doing. And if you look at the future fund, they're running about $118 billion in total. They've got $15 billion, if not maybe uh, $15, 16000000000 billion uh, in hedge funds. Uh, the Harvard Endowment, you go to all of the major sophisticated institutional investors and they've got some element of hedge fund exposure. So obviously, said like if, if it can't be that bad if the smartest people in town are actually embracing them and using them as a core part of their diversification. Yeah, not at all. And, and of course, now you look at the future funds allocation to Australian stocks and international stocks. It's uh, no, probably, I think Australian stocks is around about uh, 10 or 11% yeah. from memory and uh, I know international is not much more than That's that. That's not, yeah. Uh, so that gives you an understanding of where their risk tolerance is as well. So I think we'll uh, turn very quickly now to um, a, um, a an investment class that uh, pretty much everybody in Australia and their dogs are uh, are familiar with, and that's property. You're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm here with David Scott, and our guest this week is Neil Power, who's Managing Director of Hedge Fund Strategies at Blue Sky Alternative Investments. Um, one important uh, development in the news this week when we're looking at the, the, the RBA, um, clearly, I think in the RBA minutes uh, from its meeting this month, outlining that it's uh, increasingly um, starting to get exercised about this question of uh, financial stability, uh, given the continuing, um, I think we're looking at something like 19% per annum house growth in Sydney at the moment, uh, not sustainable. Um, now, there's talk that there's a bit of a, I suppose, a SWAT team of uh, regulators. SWAT team, um, that sounds very bearish. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, there are guys in, uh, in blue shirts, pinstripe suits and bad ties, uh, and they're coming together to, uh, um, they're, they're, they're coming together to try and figure out how they're going to uh, maybe uh, put a lid on this, probably through some macro prudential tools. Uh, Dave, you had a, a big in-depth look, look at this, uh, at the policy options there this week, hey? Yes. Uh, first and foremost, there's no easy solution to this market, and particularly, you know, the risk of tinkering with something that's worth $6.5 trillion. Uh, obviously, the, the stakes are high, so policy mistakes will be punished. And I don't think anyone in Australia wants to know that. I'm sure you boys from Ireland are well aware of uh, know what the consequences are if your housing market uh, gets into trouble. Uh, look, UBS had a great note out, uh, and they just went and looked at all the various policy options now, partly to go and try and mitigate uh, financial risk from the housing market and the debt build-up we've seen over the past 
decade or so, uh, and also trying to address housing affordability. So they both lead the same things, you know, but just you no know, different aspects that they're trying to go and fix. Um, look, uh, everything from uh, halving the capital gains tax was one solution that was uh, was put up. Uh, I know, uh, perhaps capping our claims on negative gearing. Uh, there's, of course, a lot of talk about. Uh, completely abolishing negative gearing. Uh, UBS doesn't seem to think that's a, an option. Obviously, the Liberal National Coalition is, uh, is flatly denied that that's going to be a policy change, so that probably looks like it won't go ahead. Um, apart from that, uh, you know, there's uh, a whole lot of other things as well. Um, one of the key things I found was that they were very, very... Uh, negative towards uh, allowing first-home buyers to go and access their superannuation to go and solve the housing affordability crisis. Essentially, they were saying it's a transfer of retirement savings from young Australians to uh, to people who are retiring, which I completely agree with. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, the dumb idea that just won't die, um, you know, um, the, the, the amount of money that you're supposed to be uh, saving to consume towards in your future, just pulling forward all of that uh, uh, towards, um, towards the here and now, uh, which is, you know, basically what, um, you know, the world of low interest rates has been doing for years and years. And we're now seeing, you know, having to policymakers around the world are trying to figure out how do we get out of this. Well, I do think, like you mentioned, Dave, the Irish situation, which was very, very dramatic, a thousand percent increase in property values between 1992 and 2006. And like I said, people were still buying at the top because it was going to continue forever. But the the, the, the regulatory challenges and the, the, the challenges the governments face, are they're caught between a rock and a hard place because on one hand, the big issue is housing affordability. How do young people get a uh, get a foothold in the market uh, but the solution is actually something like putting up stamp duty to make houses more unaffordable to take the edge off and of course at the time uh, as is now Ireland was in the euro so we lost our ability to put up interest rates to slow it down but it's a, the challenges are how do you calm it without making it more unaffordable and then adding to it but in truth that's what you need to do you need to take the steam out of it yeah the demand's the key and obviously in this this special task force the SWAT team as you've called them Colgo uh, it's it's largely look look what happened back in uh, in late 2014 APRA went and introduced a 10% uh, speed limit on uh, an annual credit growth to investors uh, once that was introduced six months later you saw a sharp drop off um, Income's growing so slowly at this point in time, there's definite grounds to go and say, okay, with house prices going up so much, and obviously we've seen a lot of the evidence it's, is that uh, is that investors are driving that movement, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria, uh, to go and pull that back to a, a reduced level, whether it's, uh, I think UBS used 5%, or sorry, used 7%, others have talked about 5%, that would probably go and... and cut some of that uh, that demand out of the marketplace. The Whether- other thing you could do is obviously do, well, I think they've done it in New Zealand, they've done it by location. Correct. Yeah. And that, uh, look, to be honest, there doesn't really need to be any of these uh, measures implemented in any other cities in this country besides from Sydney and Melbourne. That's where this, the hotbed, and this is where the housing affordability debate is its most acute. So there's definitely grounds to go and do that. The problem with the New Zealand example of doing that is that as they went and introduced those measures, the RBNZ was also cutting rates. So you had this policy mix where you had macro pro on one hand trying to slow down house price growth, but the other time you had the RBNZ actually cutting rates. And that's created some sort of you know, opaqueness as to whether how effective that policy is. But you no, know, realistically, if you could just go and have interest rates and, uh, and macro prudential, you'd go and have it just for Sydney and Melbourne market. Yeah, um, and of course, obviously, the, the, the RBA uh, is, you know, 
just a bit of concern about you know the trajectory of the WA economy. I mean, there's definitely some activity starting back up in the mining sector uh, now that's kind of flowing through from we've got this um, uh, the commodity price rally where you know some previously um, marginal or underperforming uh, mining operations they just weren't worth having up and running. Um, but now with commodity prices where they are, there's a few places starting to open up. A bit of tightening in the labour market. Um, uh, well, in the you know that sort of high skilled end where you got the engineers and the uh, mining specialists, etc. Um, some signs that that's uh, starting to come back to life, which is obviously very good for WA in Queensland, where there's been a lot of uh, people um, uh, struggling uh, uh, since the end of the the investment boom. Correct, and and they're they're the people who don't need to have you know talk of the RBA going and hiking rates to go and cool the Sydney and Melbourne sure. property sure. markets. Yeah, uh, that's why I personally think that's a ludicrous call. Uh, to me, it's you've got. Record underemployment. Under, unemployment is moving higher. You know, the economy is sluggish. Domestic economy is sluggish. And there's talk about going in hiking rates to go and calm house price in two cities. Uh, give me a break. It's To me, it's asking for trouble. The one thing I will say is in terms of policy challenges, a housing affordability challenge is much infinitely more preferable to the alternative where you've got a severe contraction in the economy as a result of whatever because then you are stuffed um, with you know interest rates at 1.5%, not very far to go in terms of stimulus measures, debts up, de- government you, you debt already you up bring, you, you couldn't bring any further demand forward by cutting interest rates on these levels. People, people have maxed out on the debt that they want to go and take. It's been pretty much shown apart from housing uh, to go and bring through real demand for the economy, slicing in a 0.25 or half percent off the cash rate ain't going to do that. And also you can... Most of the people in Sydney and Melbourne own property and they feel richer because the house price is going up at 18% a year and they're spending it. They're either borrowing on the equity of their house or they just feel happier to spend more and take more holidays or do whatever they're doing. So it is, it just has a stimulating effect on the economy itself. Yeah, true. Um, just quickly, um, before we move on to, um, importantly, we have to talk about the rugby because it's uh, the most important issue in the world uh, this week, I think. Um, but um, uh, there's a friend of mine who's a management consultant and uh, he um, helps companies uh, to restructure and uh, lay off people. Basically, sometimes outsource uh, things um, and maybe do, you know, contracts with, you know, get some work done in India or the Philippines where they're currently doing it um, at a much higher cost in Australia. Um, He tells a story about being in a room full of 40 reasonably experienced HR managers from, you know, not small companies. Uh, And he was doing a workshop uh, with them and he asked them – to raise, he asked the room, raise your hand if you have managed a budget during a recession. And two people stuck up there. <laughs> now, for me, I think that is, you know, and his point is, look, there's a point in a downturn where, you know, in terms of managing a company through something that even if it's, you know, just like a bad couple of years in, in, in a cycle in a particular industry, you know, you can't get the results that you're looking for by stopping the flowers getting delivered to the reception and, uh, you know, um, making Friday lunch, you know, taking that back to uh, sandwiches and uh, and tea um, instead of um, whatever it is you do that's more expensive than that. Um, so so I think very, very interesting. Um, uh, and uh, like I said, um, you know, the housing affordability question is 
much more preferable um, to to the alternative. Okay, uh, let's um, talk quickly um, about the rugby. Like I said, obviously there are um, much more important things in the world, um, but. Um, First and foremost, guys, congratulations on your victory over the Poms. Well, last thank, weekend. You, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, just, just only for the fact that now England's only got to share the uh, the, the title of the longest winning streak with New Zealand. I don't think I could go and cope with them actually winning that. Oh, I know. And look, sage advice. Uh, you know, if you want to win your 18th uh, t- test match, and this is now an iron law of the world. If you want to win your 18th consecutive t- test match, don't play don't, Ireland. Don't play Ireland. <laughs> we are party poopers. <laughs> um, look, I thought one thing that was absolutely ghastly in that game was uh, the way the English started playing in the second half. Um, brutal targeting of Johnny Sexton, um, the Irish uh, out half. Um, there was one point where he'd passed the ball and about three seconds later, uh, one of the tight five just ran into him with a shoulder and decked him. And um, and then a, and there was a high tackle. Like that was came a couple of minutes after a really dirty high tackle. Uh, very disappointing from England, uh, I think. And it's always, you know, you always prefer as a rugby fan to to see a game won um, nice and clean and played in the right spirit and everything. England losing their temper and losing their composure like that, I think, very very disappointing and uh, kind of let them down as a as a team, um, if you ask me. And that's my grumble. Fifty five thousand people is about the capacity of the stadium in Dublin, uh, and that's where um, everybody watched uh, Ireland beat England. Um, but fifty five thousand people, would you believe, is also the number of rugby players who are currently active in Australia. That is down sixty three percent. Um, from something like 150,000 in 2001. This is according to research out from Roy Morgan uh, this week. That I did a short article on it yesterday, and it's currently the top story on Business Insider this afternoon. People are horrified. Uh, rugby is now the 24th most popular participation sport in Australia, and it is oh my God. outdone by lawn bowls, darts, and 10-pin bowling, and it is equal in terms of participation with cha-cha-cha ballroom dancing <laughs> the future's not bright is it when you when you when you look at that's a that's a long friend like i've been here for 19 years and i was here during the the golden era and i think that peaked with uh, obviously the world cup win in 99 and through to the lions tour 2001, 2001. and john eels retired after that lions tour and Australian rugby has not been the same since. And kids support winners. If the Wallabies were winning, they'd be more they'd be more passionate about it. Uh, there'd be more kids. The mothers would be happier to let their kids play. That's another thing that's I think that's happening everywhere. That mothers don't let their kids play rugby, so soccer is benefiting from that. But I think I think it's deeply worrying that um, the the passion. I mean, you go to up here in Paddington in Sydney, and you go to watch the Waratahs. And the atmosphere is just not it's there. Dire. It's not there. And it hasn't been for a long time. I was all enthusiastic when I got here first. I was a season ticket holder. I'd walk up from Surrey Hills. I went to every match. And then it just got to a point where the socioeconomic that goes, it's eastern suburbs, it's Sydney. And it's not really that much fun. And everybody's around, particularly if you end up uh, occasionally, you know, go to the members or whatever. Um, and... Um uh, well, the, the reason I'd end up in there is, you know, somebody's got a few um, free tickets, which is what happens in the members. I think. <coughs> Scotty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dave, Dave, Dave has had me along a couple of times. But, um, 
you know, you're often there and uh, everybody's standing around talking and nobody's watching the game. And it's very confusing when you're an Irish bloke, uh, you know, used to, you know, dead silence, full attention on the game. It does take me back, I must say. It does take me back to my days in Dublin where we'd be going to a match in Lansdowne Road. Uh, and we'd be in Slattery's pub just around the corner. It's about a four-minute walk from the stadium. And we'd be there, watch the, 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 the prep for the match would be on the telly, and we'd see the players run out on the pitch, and we'd say, okay, one more round of drinks. You get your <laughs> other round of drinks. And then you'd run through, and then you'd squeeze yourself up to have Lock Square in, but 15 minutes in, what's the score? <laughs> <laughs> so I can't grumble too much about it. But one thing that's very exciting in rugby at the moment is that Ireland is in the bidding to host the Rugby World Cup in 2023. And I believe we're up against France and South Africa. Uh, I did hear somebody mention that Ireland might be favourites, but then again, that might have been the Irish Times I read that in. Uh, and the, the, the review committee or the inspection committee is in Ireland at the moment. So they're, uh, all, stop, all stops are out. Bono's out. Liam Neeson is out. O'Driscoll's out. Uh, all the other codes, uh, the Gaelic Football Association and, the, and football uh, the IFA, the Irish Soccer Association, uh, are supporting it, and that would be absolutely monumental for Ireland. I get the All Blacks back to Tolman Park, and uh, oh, yeah. completely. But that would be—that's the sort of lift that Ireland has been building up for the last ten or fifteen years, and twenty by the time it happens, because that would be just the biggest thing that ever happened to Ireland if that happens. Yeah, um, and Dave, one of the issues um, I suppose with the with the, the rugby at the moment is that I reckon the Super Rugby is very, very stretched, very, very thin. Uh, you you watch the uh, the Taz Brumbies game, which was billed as this blockbuster. Yes, you know, high stakes. Um, I, I was reading in the uh, SCG members uh, magazine that arrived in my uh, my letterbox the week before about the uh, the blockbuster clash between the two premier Australian rugby uh, rugby sides, uh, and yes, we were out there at the ground. Uh, having a couple of drinks, and I must say that the standard rugby was appalling. It was really, really bad. I can understand that the uh, the weather conditions were not great. It was a bit greasy underfoot and the like, but that's been seen time and time again, particularly with my team, the Waratahs. Um, and there was no excitement whatsoever, and it got to the point where my mates and myself, I'm an ex-rugby player, some of my mates still go and play. Uh, we actually talked to going looking and watching the, uh, the cricket, uh, Australian Indian Test match on our mobile phones at the ground because it was just that dull. Uh, you know, if anyone gets the opportunity, Peter Fitzsimmons wrote an excellent piece uh, in Fairfax Media uh, a couple of days ago, um, and just gave it the Waratahs with uh, with two barrels because it was. That's the kind of stuff that's not going to go and inspire young kids to go and play football. It's not going to bring crowds in, and it'll probably ensure the death of rugby in this country. What a uh, cheerful note to uh, to finish the show on. Uh, you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Uh, I'm Paul Colgan. I've been here with David Scott. And our guest this week has been Neil Power, Managing Director of Hedge Fund Strategies at Blue Sky Alternative Investments. Neil, great having you on the show. Oh, no, it's been fun. Thanks very much. I uh, really enjoyed the chat. Uh, you can find us on iTunes where you can rate us and leave us a review. We're on the web at businessinsider.com.au or on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. We'll catch you next time.
This podcast was delivered by Australia Post. If you've ever received a branded package, you'll know it's a small detail that makes a big first impression. Now with Australia Post, you can design your own personalised packaging. For more info, go to auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.